Dr. Eater. <laughs> S, S, mein Kinder. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, today is the third Wednesday of the month, which means it's time for your prescription to help with Dr. Stefan Esser. Today, he's going to be talking about the science of biologics, PRP, and stem cells. Welcome him to the show. Hi, Dr. Esser. So good to see you as always. Pleasure to be here with you, Chef AJ. You know, it's All interesting. Right. The topic you're talking about, I really know nothing about, yet we actually have had questions submitted even now about that topic. So it'd be interesting to learn from you what the science says. Yeah, this is a very hot topic. If you kind of put it into Google, you're going to see hundreds of millions of searches that people are looking up this topic uh, with regards to its efficacy to heal every manner of different uh, disease process or functional impairment. Uh, it's something that I've been involved with for the last 10 plus years doing procedures for people. Uh, and I believe that it fits very well with the lifestyle interventions that you and I both recommend to individuals. Because although we are you know, doing the best we can with the food, the exercise, nutrition, the sleep, et cetera, still our bodies can run into problems and injuries can occur. And uh, the question is, what does the science say about these biologic interventions and, and how they might help our health? And so let's jump right in. Uh, we're going to talk about what the science says. For those of you who don't know me, I'd love you to join me on social media at Esser Health. And uh, my work that I do in this field is on my essersports.com website. And my lifestyle work that you're familiar with is on EsserHealth.com. Today, I want to talk about some terms, concepts, and procedures. We're going to review some mechanisms of action. We're going to discuss some evidence, and I hope we'll provide you some guidance. Because I know a lot of you out there are curious, interested, inquisitive, uh, about this topic and about applying it to your own lives. You know, when you think about the world of musculoskeletal care, because that's where we're going to focus our biologics conversation today, is in the world of orthopedics or musculoskeletal care in large part. Uh, when you think about the different treatments that exist out there, there are a lot of them. There are the oral medications, the injections, the surgeries, uh, the therapeutic stuff, the PT, O2, home exercises, the various supplements, modalities, body work. Of course, let's not forget excellent nutrition. For those of you who haven't watched it, I encourage you to go back and watch one of my talks on orthopedics uh, and nutrition that I did with Chef AJ last uh, year or sometime. And, uh, you know, but biologics are an area that many of us uh, hear a little bit about superstars, fancy people, sports athletes using, but how much do we know about it? And today the goal is to kind of get into that area. You know, the body is pretty amazing, isn't it? It has this remarkable capacity for healing. And when you give it what it requires, the, the nutrients, the sleep, the avoidance of toxins, it's amazing how well it can in fact heal. And when you get, let's say a scratch or a cut, uh, initially your body goes into a state of hemostasis. It causes vasoconstriction, little tiny platelets rush there, these little tiny blood cells, and they cause clotting of the area. And then these platelets release growth factors, growth factors that induce uh, healing that cause angiogenesis or blood vessel formation, fibroblast formation, collagen synthesis. And all of this occurs over days to weeks to months with remodeling over time. And so the body, though, does all this work without you asking it to do it, without you telling it to do it. It inherently has this capacity and ability and knows what to do. Now, this whole area that we're going to talk about today 
is fraught with challenges, this area of biologics, this idea of using something from the body to stimulate additional or to facilitate maximized healing. Because we as physicians have a desire to help people, but we have competing interests in our hearts. We have a desire to help, but we also need to make an income. And we'd also like to advance reputation. And I bring this up because there are places that offer biologic interventions, PRP stem cells, uh, autologous tissue, and allografts, as we'll talk about. And they're doing it at incredibly high price points and essentially just raking in the money. And the question is, how much good are they really doing is with regards to actually helping patients? Or have they just focused in on the second part, which is income generation? Because there's a lot of confusion, right? And we as patients, as well as I as a provider, Many people get confused by what is the science actually saying? Because what's being marketed to us is not always what the science validates. Sometimes it's purely that which will drive us to generate more income for an individual. So why does this matter? Again, as I mentioned, if you Google search this topic of biologics, of stem cells, PRP, you're going to get 400 million results on Google, literally. And, you know, then come all those other pieces, that competing interest and the confusion of it all. And so, you know, where's the truth of the matter? Well, today we're going to start with foundational concepts. We're going to start with terms. So this term orthobiologic essentially means the use of a biologic substance to prompt or stimulate a healing event within your body. We are using something that's already in you. We might be concentrating it, multiplying it, um, separating it out, purifying it, but we use it in such a way to stimulate a healing event. Now, there really are two major classes of biologic substances that are used in humans right now. They're what are called autografts, which means something we take from ourself. Uh, this can be from our blood in the form of platelet-rich plasma or in the form of bone marrow or derived stem cells from fat. And then allografts, meaning something we take from somebody else. In large part, this makes reference to tissues uh, taken from the placental tissues or amniotic tissues and using this to facilitate a healing moment or healing event. Let's start with platelets. These are autologous tissue on average, which means they come from you. And we take some blood and blood itself, don't forget, is only a very tiny amount uh, of blood is platelets. It's less than 2% of your total volume of blood. The other 50% is red blood cells and the remainder is plasma or water content with proteins. These little tiny, tiny little blood cells are 20% the diameter of a red blood cell, and they're loaded with growth factors. If you were to look at a platelet under a microscope, you'd see this, and you'd see these little, what are called alpha granules. These alpha granules are loaded with little proteins, molecules, that do all of these things that you see there. Stop bleeding, grow proteins, grow blood vessels, attract stem cells. And these different molecules that are in these alpha granules include these different uh, names like you know, TGF beta and PTGF beta, et cetera, and VEGF, you know, and each of these do different things. So when that platelet is stimulated to release these growth factors, it does so. And then these growth factors uh, facilitate some event. As I mentioned, you can see on this slide how plasma, 55% or so, red blood cells, 45% here, this little bit of platelets, very tiny amount. So what happens is we take blood from your arm and then spin it down. 
And initially this might be what the blood looks like, all these red blood cells and a little bit of platelets in here. Uh, and then when we concentrate it through the use of a centrifuge and other devices, we end up with something that's largely platelets, plasma, and only a tiny amount of red blood cells. So then now we've concentrated the platelets up to 10 plus times. And we have this very heavily concentrated platelet-rich fluid. That's what platelet-rich plasma is. So all these growth factors now concentrated in a small volume that we then use. What about stem cells? A lot of people use the term stem cell. It turns out that in order to truly be a stem cell, it requires two specific things. One, it can renew itself through cellular division. And number two, it can be prompted to turn into a specific other cell line. So I might, for example, take some stem cells out of somebody's bone marrow, and then those nucleated mesenchymal stem cells have the capacity to turn into cartilage, into bone, into tendon, depending upon what they're surrounded by. I tell people that stem cells are kind of like high school graduates that haven't made a decision about which field to go into. But if you surround them with a bunch of math majors, they're more likely to go that route. If you surround them with a bunch of English, English buffs, they're more likely to go down that route. And so what they are surrounded by influences which path they go, the chemical environment that they find themselves in. Now, stem cells, really, there are three major types, if you will, these totipotent. These are cells from the early embryo stage, and they can turn into anything, right? And in the pluripotent, same sort of a concept, they can turn into pretty much everything. And then multipotent. In the U.S., only multipotent stem cells are legal because of ethical implications. The tissues that are used are things from full-term infants, like the amniotic the tissue around the infant or the placental tissue or cord blood, or the adult stem cells derived from fat or bone marrow. These are multipotent. They have capacity, but it's not that, for example, if you take them out of the fat and you put them in a knee, someone's suddenly going to grow hair inside their knee. But when you use pluripotent or totipotent cells, they actually can do that. And in the studies done with various cancers using these totipotent or pluripotent cells, there have been cases of inducing odd cancers or other problems. And so that's problematic. Now, the two primary sources of stem cells in adult humans are bone marrow. Remember, the bone marrow is the core of your bones. And it is like a sponge that is loaded with growth factors that grow and stimulate. And over time, when you initially, they're amazing sources of stem cells. But as we age, our long bones in particular become more of fat storage locations. The pelvis, calvarium or skull, heel bones and ribs maintain this ability to continue to form a lot of our red blood cells, white blood cells, and to be stem cell active. So we tend to harvest it from the back of the pelvis um, where we take this bone marrow out and use that bone marrow as a source of stem cells. This is a nice picture you can see of the bone marrow with a various spongy appearance. And so when I put a needle into here and uh, draw out fluid, it pulls these different little marrow cells along with some of the stem cells that are all on the periphery into the needle and out of the body. So here's an example. This is me doing a stem cell procedure on someone where I'm using this, what's called trocar or needle, and we're sucking bone marrow out. And uh, then we use that as a source of stem cells. As I mentioned, the other form of adult stem cells that are being researched at this time are fat-derived stem cells. So it turns out your fat is actually good for something, and that is for the uh, storage or production of these mesenchymal-derived stem cells. And so we do have a liposuction. 
And then we microfragment or break up the fat. And uh, this releases the stem cells, which then we inject, as you can see here, uh, into affected areas. The other tissues I mentioned were the uh, allografts from other, in other words. And this is largely, right, as I mentioned, chorionic and amniotic fluid uh, tissues from this periphery around the developing infant uh, that is then used, right? So this amniotic, cord blood, and placental tissues. Uh, another area that uh, does have some data and a growing body of evidence is called prolotherapy, which is uh, kind of a, a much less expensive and less invasive uh, sort of treatments in which we use either dextrose or vitamin C uh, as a noxious agent injected into ligaments around structures to cause the ligaments to tighten and the joints to become more stable. Uh, there are a bunch of studies out now, even randomized controlled trials showing that prolotherapy can be very helpful uh, for mild to moderate arthritic changes in joints and slight joint instability with chronic pain. So this was developed, this concept by Hackett and Hemwall of the University of Wisconsin in the 1950s, and the data just continues to progress over time. Let's talk a little about science. You know, when it comes to these biologic treatments, the main reason people get these is either for pain, for functional improvement, or for prevention. So for example, I treat some high-level athletes who want to maximize uh, the function and performance. I treat also average Joes and Janes, people in their 60s and 70s with progressive arthritis who want to be able to walk without pain again. And now more and more people are looking into this area for prevention. But what does the science say? Well, there are a lot of problems that can go on in our bodies, including osteoarthritis, right? There's wearing away the cartilage layer on the end of your joints tendon problems with partial tears, meniscus injuries, labral injuries. Many of you may have suffered with some of these yourselves. We wanna know, right, from a scientific perspective, because I want you to put your science hats on for a moment. Whenever you hear about an intervention, you want to understand, is this something that relates to you, right? And is there a need, right? Is there a reasonable science-based mechanism? Are there animal-based studies and are there human studies? And so we're gonna walk through this a little bit. Let's start with mechanisms. We know there's a need because it turns out in fact that one of the top three reasons to see primary care physician in America are musculoskeletal complaints. We also know that as a society, we have progressed, we've aged, we're getting much older, right? The over the age of 70 is the most one of the most rapidly growing populations in the US. And we also have an epidemic of obesity and this combination of chronic inflammation, excess load bearing, along with progressive aging leads to progressive osteoarthritis and degeneration of joints. And so we want to know though, can the biologic agents help us? So remember how I said on this last slide, we want to have a reasonable science-based mechanism, how something might help. Well, let's start with PRP. Turns out PRP works in four ways, according to the science. The first mechanism is it delivers growth factors, as we mentioned. Remember those alpha granules, those little encapsulated areas inside the platelet, so that when you get an injury, they rush there and they release out the growth factors that then cause clotting and healing. Number two is when a lot of platelets go in one area, they cause the local area to release more growth factors for up to four to six weeks at a time. It's pretty amazing. Number three is that if you put platelets in quantity into a joint, they cause that joint to produce more hyaluronic acid, which is the gel that lubricates the inside of the joint and maintains its flexibility and motion. Number four is that platelets, when you put a lot of them together in one area, attract stem cells that are circulating in small quantity through your bloodstream. They attract them to that area. So in other words, it's kind of like the first responders get to the problem site and then they bring in the next level of care to help to heal an injured area. 
Now, if you take anti-inflammatories, whenever you start getting some pain or dysfunction, or if right, you have some other chronic problem and you're taking drugs that inhibit your platelets, well, then the platelets can't work well, right? They're unable, right, to facilitate this healing event, right? And that's problematic because we want them to be able to heal well uh, and to resolve, right, kind of your symptoms acutely. And if you let this go for too long, it can become a chronic issue. So I tell people all the time now, when you, for example, go out and play a little tennis or pickleball or do some work in the yard, and now your tendon and your shoulder, your knee is bothering you because a little bursitis or tendonitis, don't take an anti-inflammatory. Rather, rest it, ice it, do some gentle therapies, but allow the body to have some acute inflammation to cause healing. Don't inhibit that initial inflammation because that was the healing event that your body needed. And if you inhibit it, now you can end up with chronic problems. Now, clinical studies, let's start here. A lot of people develop Achilles tendinosis, and this was initially studied with PRP. And as you'll notice, right, the individuals who received a single PRP injection on MRI and functionally had good improvement, right, with resolution of the majority on MRI and resolution of their symptoms physically and functionally. Now, the limitations on this study, of course, is there are no randomization, no blinding, no placebo control, just a single PRP injection. And uh, yet people did improve notably. What about next? Uh, what if you took an individual and did a PRP injection and compared it to the use of uh, what is now being promoted, the use of a, what's called shockwave therapy for Achilles tendinopathy? Well, again, studies would suggest PRP does better. What about individuals who have tennis elbow? I'm going to show you a smattering of different soft tissue issues and PRP. Well, if you get PRP compared to steroid, PRP does a lot better at two-year follow-up. But take a look, right? This is a long-term follow-up. It's not that the people who got PRP got better in two weeks, but rather that it took some time, but over time they got better. What about if you took individuals and you randomized them to have a steroid injection or PRP for plantar fasciitis? Well, that's that miserable first-step pain in the back of the bottom of the heel, uh, studies show us that PRP does better, less likely for people to move on to surgery and less likelihood of reinjection as compared to steroid. And what about, again, here's another study, right? Just more recent, 2023, same thing. PRP showing better than steroid injection for plantar fasciitis. Now, back to our next study here. This is a retrospective review done by an Emory University that looked at individuals and compared how do they do if they had a tendon issue, a soft tissue issue, right? And they got PRP. And what it showed, right, is they did quite well. They had notable improvement, 82% with moderate to complete improvement in their symptoms, uh, the majority doing quite well. So there are some limitations, though, in kind of looking at the soft tissue data on PRP. Uh, and that includes, right, whether there is randomization, whether there's blinding, meaning people don't know what they're getting. Uh, as well as, you know, how do they do the procedure with or without ultrasound guidance? You know, do they have the right diagnosis? All these different questions. But the literature with regards to the use of PRP for soft tissue problems is mixed. Some showing very good benefit, others showing a little bit of a mixed outcome. That's different than PRP and osteoarthritis. The studies on PRP and osteoarthritis show that single injections, double injections, even triple injections, Studies showing that benefit is there. Studies showing that if you get PRP in compared to salt water, or if you get PRP in comparison to prolotherapy, 
or if you do PRP in comparison to gel injections, or if you do PRP in comparison to so many other treatments like the steroids, et cetera, that PRP does better. And so for those of you out there who struggle with pain from mild to moderate, especially arthritis of the joints, especially of the knees, hands down, you should, you know, first of all, maximize your nutrition, maximize the weight load, right? Making sure that you're not carrying excess weight. You've reduced inflammation. You've done some good therapy to normalize mechanics. But if you're still having problems, PRP is a wonderful treatment and you should get it. You should go out and, and get this procedure done for you by someone who knows what they're doing. So I do PRP probably at the most affordable cost anywhere in the U.S. at $400 right now for PRP. Most places do it for around 1000 So I actually have people who fly in down to see me, have a nice consult, et cetera. We do their PRP and they stay in a hotel and they still somehow save money, right? Or they drive in from another state and they still save money. Um, but PRP is extraordinarily beneficial for mild to moderate arthritis if done correctly and appropriately. Now, what's very exciting too about this is we're seeing now studies, this one published last year, showing that if you do PRP, it slows the progression of arthritis in your joint. And we wanna see more studies like this to prove this again and again. But if this turns out to be the case, it may be that when you and I hit 50 or 60, that we go in and get a PRP injection once every year to stimulate growth in our cartilage layer to protect our cartilage uh, long-term. So we're at a place now with PRP and osteoarthritis that 14,000 plus articles published showing excellent benefit up to two plus years, if not even longer, especially for those who are younger and have less severe arthritis. Now, if you have end-stage bone-on-bone arthritis, right, uh, PRP is less likely to give you significant benefit. It may give you short-term benefit, but unlikely to give you years of benefit at a time. And that's important to know, are you a good candidate or just a so-so candidate for this treatment. When it comes to stem cells, I first got interested in this based upon animal-based studies. And I apologize to the animals. I, I hate to see these studies done in them, but it did give good literature moving us forward in the direction of treatments for humans. And what it showed was that if you took an animal with arthritis, took some stem cells from them and linked them to fluorescent proteins, that then when injected back in the joint, these fluorescently protein-linked stem cells would go to the areas of injury in the cartilage and actually bind into the areas and heal the cartilage itself. Really remarkable to see, but multiple studies showing this over time. In addition, I saw studies right back 10 plus years ago that showed that when you used your own stem cells, there was really zero risk of cancer and almost zero risk of infection if done correctly. So that prompted me to begin to offer these procedures 10 years or eight to 10 years ago and track my own patients. And what I saw was that about 80% of people had beautiful responses. And these responses could last out five to eight years. In fact, I have some of my patients from eight years ago who are still doing remarkably well with no significant joint pain after receiving their stem cell injections. Bone marrow-derived stem cell injections were the primary uh, sort of science out there up until a couple of years ago. Now we're beginning to see some fat-derived stem cell occurring. And this fat-derived stem cell studies are very promising, showing us individuals with significant reductions in pain and improvement in function that can last out years at a time. Functional improvements, pain relief occurring even in individuals with autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, using stem cell treatments to reduce pain, improve quality of life, and to help reduce their dependence on medications. 
So really cool to see. And the sort of outcomes we're talking about, here's a nice study out of UCLA that showed 71% reduction in joint pain in individuals with moderate to advanced osteoarthritis of the knees. And 91% of people saying they'd repeat the procedure. And so I follow this sort of uh, protocol as well, doing a single bone marrow-derived stem cell and six weeks later, a PRP injection. And then the overwhelming majority of people with excellent responses. So this is an exciting area to see. And the literature is quite robust and is growing every year with regards to the use of these treatments for individuals in particular, the sweet spot is people with moderate arthritis of their joints. Those are the individuals who appear to have the most total benefit. Now, Unfortunately, there's a lot of hype about amniotic procedures, the use of stem cells derived from you know, the infant stage uh, or the developing child stage. And, and the problem is uh, there's all this hype. And what they say is, well, there's so many more stem cells and they're so much younger and they're so much more active. Well, the problem is there's not nearly as much data in their use. And so while the marketing concept sounds good, as a Harvard and Mayo guy, I want more data. I want the science that says, show me the people getting amniotic-based injections and show me their outcomes over time. And, you know, there are a couple, there are maybe a handful, less than about 10 or 15 studies in humans showing outcomes, right? That, that show there's some benefit to the use of these. Most of them are, quote, safety studies and, you know, not necessarily outcome-based studies. So we need more of this, right? And again, it's important, like even here, look at this amniotic-based study, 63% of people responded at 12 months. That means 40% or so non-responder, right, uh, you know, for this. And there was no significant difference, right, in x-ray findings and inflammatory markers, et cetera. So again, be very careful if you yourself are considering biologic treatments to not get sucked into that simple little marketing thing that's saying, oh, there are more stem cells in there and they're younger and more active. Again, who do you want building your house? A small number of people who know how to build a house or a lot of people who've never built a house before, right? And so that's the simple argument there. But also remember when you're using tissue from somebody else, you run the risk of infections of hepatitis C, HIV, and these other problems, uh, you know, versus your own tissues, that risk is not there. So, you know, in the one study that was published about two years ago in the use of amniotic-based solution for, for example, hip OA, about a 50% reduction in pain, right? So some improvement, uh, but again, not a miracle cure. And we need to keep that in mind when we're looking at this literature and data, what should we expect, right? So the majority of people who have moderate OA who do, for example, fat-derived or bone-derived stem cell, they on average, right, up to 70% improvement in their symptoms. So again, the potential is real. The lab data is impressive. The studies are growing. Uh, anecdotes abound, right? I can tell you stories about people with full thickness rotator cuff tears that had full healing. I can tell you about people, you know, who had moderate end to end stage away who were told they should have a knee replacement five years ago and still have not, you know, all kinds of great stories. But the reality is this is not a panacea and it doesn't help everybody all the time. The procedures themselves, it's good to kind of know a little bit about them, right? The PRP I mentioned to you, we just draw some blood, spin it down, hyperconcentrate it, and there it is, that liquid gold that we then use to inject into these areas of injury. Stem cell procedure, I mentioned, we numb the back right here. This is that low back pelvis area. Take a needle, place it in, draw out the stem cells, and then use this bone marrow-derived stem cell-rich fluid and hyper-concentrate it in a centrifuge, and then use that and inject it into individuals' areas. 
The fat, as I mentioned, a simple lipoaspiration, um, and we harvest this and then use it as a source of stem cells to inject. The injections, I wanna stress this, should always be done under guidance of some form or another, uh, whether it be ultrasound guidance or fluoroscopy. So if you're considering having one of these procedures done, you should always have it done by somebody who's well-trained in this field and uses appropriate guidance. There's no excuse in 2023, except for laziness or that you're just trying to make more money uh, to not use some form of imaging ability, right? So for example, I, I've heard of chiropractors hiring nurse practitioners who come in and do stem cell quote unquote injections. They charge people five to $10,000 and blindly inject who knows what into their knees, uh, right? They're just taking their money and laughing all the way to the bank. And this happens all too often. Uh, there are a lot of snake oil salesmen out there, and that's something I want to protect you from. So make sure they're appropriately trained, have appropriate uh, education for this. Uh, and that should be like a sports medicine trained physician who's ultrasound trained and knows how to use guidance to do these injections, uh, you know, and has a, a track record of safety and positive outcomes. Um, there are a lot of contraindications for these procedures. It's important for you to know. If you have a low platelet count, right? If you have a platelet disorder, if you're actively on blood thinners, whether they be anti-inflammatory medicines like ibuprofen or Motrin, um, if you've just had a corticosteroid injection in that area, uh, these are all sort of contraindications. So if you, for example, come to see a doctor and you're on ibuprofen twice a day and they say, well, let's go do your shot for you, uh, that's a problem. That means they're just trying to take you to the bank and they really don't have your best interest at heart. Um, or if you actively have cancer, right? Or if you are pregnant, uh, you should not be getting biologic injections uh, because there are other risks associated. So just make sure you're aware of that, you know? So the conclusions I want you to walk away with today are the following. This area of PRP and stem cells is extremely exciting. Uh, there's immense potential. But we want to be careful that we don't open our you know, minds so wide that our brains fall out, right? That's a Groucho Marx line right there, right? Uh, we want to make sure that we're still following science and data because you are hurting. You have pain. You have injury. You want to get back to living life and having fun. But is this biologic intervention going to actually help you, right? Or is it just going to take your money inappropriately? So I see people all the time that I turn away that I say, you're not a good candidate right? You need this. You should be doing that. Had a guy the other day, he spent $5,000 on PRP injections for his shoulder and all he had was frozen shoulder. He didn't need any biologic injection. I, I saw him, I did actually a procedure called a hydro distension where I expand the shoulder with fluid. All of his pain went away and he went back to fun, but he had wasted $5,000 and he was a well and, you know, educated, intelligent guy who just got marketed to. Yeah. Or I had a patient some time back who spent literally $10,000 on stem cell injections and it, the reality is all they had was, right, a chronic inflammatory, diffuse inflammatory problem. They needed to change their diet and all their pain went away. But they had spent all this money and taken a second loan out for their fibromyalgia and got hooked into somebody lying to them that stem cells would help them. So the areas that the science is robust for this, individuals with mild to moderate osteoarthritis, partial tendon, ligament, or muscle injuries, and possibly full unretracted tendon tears. So if the tendon of the rotator cuff, for example, is torn but not retracted, placing some stem cells there in the form of fat or bone marrow-derived stem cells can be beneficial to help stabilize the area. So keep that in mind as you think, make sure you have the right diagnosis, 
you've got the right clinician and you're the appropriate candidate for these treatments. With regards to safety, which should always be the number one concern, your cells unmanipulated, done locally, not via IV, but done locally under guidance by somebody who knows what they're doing is certainly the lowest risk. And that's what I'd encourage you to consider this form of injection if you're struggling with a chronic musculoskeletal ailment. As you've heard me talk about my previous talks, however, the real place to always start is that foundational lifestyle interventions. It's going to be the nutritional interventions, maximizing there, whether it be my four or six week program, whether it be doing something with Chef AG with her books and her programs, uh, whether it be uh, along with an excellent physical therapeutic program and protocol. You know, for many of us, we're not using our posterior shoulders, our gluteal muscles. We're not stretching out our hip flexors. We're not working our lateral hips. And as a result, we have abnormal mechanics across our primary joints, which leads to accelerated degenerative changes. And if we just address these underlying biomechanical issues, our symptoms improve or resolve, and we slow the process of degeneration. So make sure that you are checking all the boxes of nutrition, therapies, right? The basic simple things before you move on to the upper next level. And when you move on to that upper next level, safety matters most. All right. Well, with that, that's it for today. I just wanted to get this because I know Chef AJ said we have some questions. So let's see if we can get into some of these questions and topics. This is going to be a, a good one, I think. We sure do. Now you mentioned not to have it if you have can if you have cancer, if you're pregnant. What are the risks of doing it if you have those conditions? Yeah, and I think one of the so one of the big parts is the following. Think about what these procedures are trying to do. They're trying to stimulate a healing event. And a healing events require energy. And if your body is already so disorganized that you know it's dealing with cancer, it's chronically inflamed, right? Which is cancer is a chronic inflammation at the heart of it. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of extra energy to try to heal some musculoskeletal issue. And so stealing from it further to try to heal, right? So for example, taking blood, drawing bone marrow, these are still quote insults to the body, right? I mean, you're, you're doing something to it. You're, you're, and so uh, we want to use all the energy if possible for healing uh, the cancer, right? In that moment, in that time. So people who have a history of cancer, that's fine. But people who are actively involved with some form of treatment or a you know, cancer diagnosis that's new, I wouldn't recommend it. People who are pregnant, well, you know, especially the first or second trimester, there's always risk of miscarriage, uh, no matter what you do, uh, even, you know, even if you do no procedures, uh, but certainly you just don't want to, you know, number one, induce a miscarriage. And number two, again, the body needs all of its energy for producing this next, you know, generation. Um, so rather not use it to try to heal some arthritis in your knee at the same time. So that makes sense. And you do all these procedures. So if somebody wanted to come to Florida, you could do that for them. Oh, right? absolutely. Yes. And some people come, for example, and stay in our little juice bungalow and then come over and we do the procedures. It's kind of nice. Uh, other people just stay in hotels if we're booked here uh, and do that. But it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a nice thing. And my price points are so low that uh, I think it really makes a lot of sense for a lot of folks who want to do this. And do you like for the actual procedures, do you take insurance and does insurance generally cover these procedures? All biologic injections are not paid for by standard insurance or Medicare. They're actually only paid for by like travelers insurance, workers compensation and some VA benefits. Um, so, but yeah, all of these are not paid for, which is interesting. So all the devices that we use to do these procedures are all FDA cleared. Um, and yet insurance just doesn't pay for these, even though the studies now show that PRP is better than steroid and gel and all the rest. So uh, I hope at some point they'll catch up, but uh, I'm not holding my breath. Well, wow, are they very expensive? 
Uh, well, the procedures, it depends on where you do them, right? So for example, r right down the road, you know, you can get a PRP injection for $1,500 for one injection, but I do PRP for $400. So I am the least expensive that I know of anywhere in the US. And I'm trying to keep it that way because uh, you know, I, where I was doing these procedures, we were doing them for around $800 to $1,000 each. And uh, you know, my reason to become a doctor was to help people. And so I was like, why are we doing this? Let's see if we can offer it for less expensive. So um, it's been a lot of fun to do. And we're you know, seeing positive outcomes for the majority of people, which is great. Are these procedures painful for most people? And how long does it take for people to start experiencing a benefit? And does everybody benefit? Or for some people, maybe it doesn't work as well? Yeah. So I tell people if you're appropriately screened, like some of the things I said, moderate OA, right? Partial tears, et cetera. I'd say about 80%. So I, I know this because the first couple hundred people I treated, I tracked and we did questionnaires every couple of weeks with function and pain scores. And 80% of people did remarkably well. 20% of people failed to have any significant benefit, right? It was like they were 30% better. To me, that's not success. And um, so the, as far as pain wise, uh, injecting into large joints like hips, knees, and shoulders is pretty comfortable. It doesn't hurt very much. Uh, injecting into small joints like knee, or pardon me, uh, fingers and toes is extremely painful and extremely unpleasant. And that discomfort can last for a couple hours to up to a day after. Um, but if done, a, well, again, some people have had PRP and had it injected blindly and half the time they're not even in the right place. And so it really can hurt a lot um, versus if they inject in the appropriate place and there's far less pain. Um, the harvest of bone marrow is probably, I tell people two to four minutes of a weird sucking pain in your hip, um, but you can always, you know, take a Valium or whatever, if you need before the, uh, harvesting of fat is pretty much painless. It's a little weird pinch, a little weird tug and jiggle, um, but not usually painful at all. Do you give something during the procedure to make it less? Yeah, painful? we use, yes, we use anesthesia, right? So I mean, I numb people, right? Um, you know, in those areas, you know, when we harvest. Harvest, it sounds very... Ooh. I know. Uh, yeah. Harvest. Wow. The best is to look at a person and say, you're a good harvest. Did you know that? Wow. That's <laughs> This is really interesting because there's so I hear so many people ask questions about it. Even Carolyn, who wrote us in advance and said, Dr. Esser, I've had difficulty with recurring hip bursitis. I've had cortisone injections, but after three months, when the injections wear off, the pain comes back. Would PRP or other treatments be helpful? I'm postmenopausal and have weight to lose, although I've been having some success. Any suggestions would be much appreciated. Lateral hip pain can either be associated with the tendons that insert on the side of the femur, the big thigh bone, or they can be associated with the nerves that travel from the low back and wrap around the hip. So the most important thing is to always make sure which one is this? Is this a truly what we call greater trochanteric pain syndrome, or is it some referred low back pain to the lateral hips? Now, steroid injections can help give short-term pain relief, but they do increase the risk of rupture or tearing of those lateral hip tendons. And so if a person has had recurrent steroid injections and now the pain always comes back, my first recommendation is get an MRI. And if the MRI shows that you now have partial tearing of the tendons, you need to stop all steroids. And yes, you would wanna go with PRP or some form of stem cell to try to get those tendons to heal and to tighten up in that area. And so I recommend that as well as if the, uh, you know, simple, let's not forget too, the lateral hip is really the rotator cuff of the hip and you need to have good, strong lateral hip muscles. So if you're not on a daily basis doing a good Pilates type lateral hip program, uh, that should be incorporated into your day-to-day -day activities. 
but yes, if you go to essersports.com and click on science on the PRP page, you're going to see about five studies on gluteal tendinopathy showing PRP is better than steroid and has great long-term efficacy. Wow, that is fantastic. Thank you. So interesting. And another question on PRP stem cell, and this is from Anonymous in relation to hair loss. Dr. Esser, will you please comment on additional things that might help with hair loss as seen in female pattern baldness that is perhaps less drastic than PRP and stem cell? I think the first thing is to always maximize your nutrient intake and to reduce as much as possible your stress and inflammation. And so, you know, I, I tell people, right, an excellent micronutrient dense plant-based diet is very important. Uh, and then you may, if you're still experiencing some hair loss, you do need to get the appropriate labs, make sure your thyroid hormone is not off your vitamin D and B vitamins are looking good. Uh, so in other words, your total health is, is all in line. Uh, make sure that you're getting that, you know, seven to 10 hours of sleep per night, waking rested, uh, making sure you're not exposing yourself to unnecessary toxins. Like, you know, you're using natural hair dye. If you are using hair dye, not the artificial chemical stuff that can lead to damage of the follicles. Uh, and then some people, you know, despite their best efforts still have difficulties and starting supplementation with biotin and zinc, maybe a little iodine, right. For a lot of people can be helpful as far as the other, uh, sort of interventions for hair loss. There is evidence for many of these things. And uh, the question just is how much it helps and who it helps, but things like whether it be the fine micro needling, uh, things like the different red lasers and red lights, uh, there is actually data for all of those treatments, right? And just like there is data for PRP in the scalp. Uh, but again, for most of these, um, it doesn't help everybody and it has a limited window of benefit and you have to continue the treatments. So for example, PRP appears to help for six months to a year with hair loss, but then you have to repeat it. So mm -hmm. for many people, they come see me and I might do their PRP in their knee and they go, hey, can you throw a little in the scalp? And I go, sure, no problem. So we throw a little bit up there as well. Um, and there is, again, there are studies in the journals of dermatology demonstrating benefit. Uh, but you know, never miss sight, lose sight of the, the foundational health first and then add these other treatments on top. You mentioned that it might have to be repeated. What about the other areas of the body? Does it generally have to be repeated? And if so, what is the frequency? Yeah, for moderate arthritis of a joint, depending upon, so the, how frequent it needs to be repeated really depends upon the level of use of the joint as well as the level of inflammation through the body. So if you go back to my orthopedics and nutrition talk, uh, you'll recall that the uh, food that we eat radically influences the chondrocyte health, which are the cartilage cells of the knees and the hips and the shoulders and the fingers. And so if you are constantly washing your, your, your cartilage with inflammatory molecules that cause your cells to turn off and die, it's not good. But if you are washing your cells with things that say, wake up, regenerate, rejuvenate, right? That's wonderful. And so I have people from seven years ago, eight years ago that I injected with PRP and never needed it again. And I have other people I've injected and they got a year of benefit and they come back for a repeat injection. So, and uh, how they live and what they do heavily influences that. Great, thank you. I'm on your website. Where does one find those articles you mentioned about? Yes, each topic. So if you go from the essersports.com website and click on PRP, you'll see at the bottom, there's a little blue thing that, you know, it's a hyperlink and it says, learn more on the science here. And then you click on that. And then it takes you to a whole page of science on PRP stem cells. And so I probably got about 50 or hundred studies on there. You can just click and then it takes you to the study itself. And then you can look at that study. But I also have a little brief kind of, here's what the study said. And then you can go look at the study yourself. 
great. Um, yeah. it, um, maybe I was on the wrong website, EsserHealth.com. Yeah, so you've got to go to EsserSports.com. Got it. That's what I was doing. I see feature. Okay, I'll be able to find it now. Thank yep. you. I didn't realize you had a second website. We should put that in the show notes. Great. Uh, this is from Christy. I have a concern about bones. There's a carnivore doctor, Sean Baker, who says that many celebrities have broken their bones from being vegetarian for years. Is it true that vegetarian diets cause weak bones? I wouldn't say that vegetarian diets, quote unquote, cause weak bones, but I would say that there are risk factors related to a plant-based diet that may increase your risk of osteopenia, osteoporosis. And those risks, probably the largest one is related to um, the body mass index, because people who consume a very healthy program on average have a lower body mass index, which is excellent for the risk of breast cancer and colon cancer and their risk of osteoarthritis in the joints, et cetera. Uh, but because you're carrying less weight, then your bones get less weight through them. And as a result, you're more likely to have osteopenia or osteoporosis over time. Now, remember 80% of fractures, especially in the lower extremity occur as a result of falls. So it's not so much even that the person has weak bones, it's that they fall because they have decreased reaction time, they have decreased muscle mass and lean muscle mass, et cetera. And so we need to, regardless of what diet we choose over the long run, make sure we're maximizing our function performance, reaction time, strength, uh, et cetera, as we age. And so the benefits of the plant-based program far outweigh any related risks to our bones uh, because almost none of us die of osteopenia. Uh, we all are more likely to die of heart disease or various hormonal cancers. And yet a plant-based program reduces your risk of all of those things. And there's so much you can do. Just go back and watch Chef AJ's and my talk on osteoporosis from a couple of months back, and you can watch a whole video about the topic. Great. Thank you. And this is from Jean. Okay. Uh, how effective is stem cell therapy or PRP in restoring gut function in a bloated, slender, 70-year-old-plus senior? There's no evidence at this time to support the use of stem cells or PRP for that condition. Okay, thank you. Where should we send her? To a GI doctor? Uh, well, she could start with Bukowitz, right? His book in- Bolshewitz, yeah, read fiber, fiber yeah, fuel. Yeah. Just do a nice, I mean, at the heart of it, right, is starting with a good four to six weeks cleanup, whether that be my program or Bolshewitz or Chef AJ's program or whatever, you know, it's, uh, you know, many of us doctors focus in on specific areas because of our specialties, but the reality is uh, follow any guy of the guys or girls programs that advocate this. So long as it's a good, clean, salt, you know, SOS free, clean program, and you're going to have great health benefits if you're converting from the standard American diet. Great. Thank you. And this is from Judith. I have a torn meniscus and was told that it would not heal on its own. Is surgery the only option and what are the risks? The indication for surgery with meniscal tears is if you have instability chronically in the joint and if you have catching and locking and chronic swelling, despite greater than six weeks of physical therapy and other conservative measures. So if you've done greater than six weeks of excellent daily PT with a good physical therapist, um, and you still have locking, instability, and catching in your joint and loss of range of motion, you may in fact need surgery. But you really want to avoid surgery as much as possible with meniscus tears because when you have that surgery, it accelerates arthritis in your knee by 300 to 600% according to the studies. So I treat a lot of people with PRP and stem cells with excellent outcomes. So for example, I have a 40-year-old CrossFit athlete who had a big tear all the way through his, and I recently last week just saw him in follow-up. He's three months out and he's 90% better. He's able to do a workout in the gym, do the majority of everything he wants to do. 
and he's had no surgery. Yeah. And so small meniscus tears especially do very well. Great. You know, my husband had a torn meniscus and it did heal. So That's it right. can heal. Yep. It's amazing. That's right. yep. The body can heal when given the right conditions. That's it. This is from uh, Jean. I am a postmenopausal woman and I'm concerned about the mixed information regarding how excessive supplemental calcium and vitamin D might increase the risk of existing atrial fibrillation. Yeah, and so you should be concerned about that. And the studies would suggest that in taking, uh, you know, calcium as a single supplement increases your risk of a heart attack by about 15%, according to studies. So a big meta-analysis published. If you go back and watch my talk with Chef AJ on supplements, the science of supplements, we went through that article briefly. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you should be getting your calcium from your deep green vegetables and from your figs and from your, you know, hundreds of other sources and your excellent nutritional, you know, uh, program. That's where you should be getting your calcium, not necessarily from the addition. Most people don't suffer from low calcium. They suffer from perhaps vitamin D that is a little bit low and also from inadequate strength building exercises that build their bones and their lean muscle. So I'd focus there rather than on the calcium as a supplement. Right. I just saw a question in the chat, but it, I don't know exactly at what part of when you were talking, it was posted, but maybe you'll be able to figure out from Diana. Do you do this for cosmetics as well? I do not do vampire facelifts at this time, but there are a lot of people out there who do. Uh, and so again, this is this sort of microneedling slash injection of PRP under the skin around the wrinkle lines that appears to have a plumping up and rejuvenating effect on the face. So um, again, you know, not wrong to do it if you want to spend the cash and there is some data to support its use. But again, always uh, remember you want to have a well-trained individual and, uh, and remember that the benefits will be short-lived uh, like most uh, sort of aesthetic things. Great. Thank you. And Joyce says, can your procedures work in knees if there's no cartilage left in your bone on bone? Yeah. Bone on bone end-stage osteoarthritis usually does not significantly improve with stem cells and PRP. Individuals may get some decrease in pain. And I've even had some people, you know, oh, I can walk farther and longer. It doesn't swell as much, all of those things, right? So, because I have people frequently that I see who uh, they say, look, I don't want a knee replacement. I want to try something else. And I say, okay, well, you're not a great candidate, but I'm willing to do it if you want to, so long as you understand that. And uh, right, because it's informed consent on their part, that's fine. Uh, and so I've done a, a number of people, quite a few over the years, and uh, many of them have had positive benefits. Um, but again, based on the science, the answer to you would be to say the benefit is likely to be low and short-lived. But as far as anecdotes, sure. I have some people that have done remarkably well and are super happy they did it. Very nice. And uh, there's a comment that, where'd it go? Somebody, uh, Susie said, whose stem cells are used for these treatments? Amniotic, whose baby? Yeah, so you can go back and, and watch some of the video that we went through together, but uh, amniotic solutions don't have as much data. So I do not do uh, allografts at this time. Those are from uh, infants, et cetera. Uh, I do am, pardon me, I do uh, autographs, which means from the individual who I'm treating. Uh, and so that bypasses both the ethical complications as well as uh, the possible infectious complications. And the data on allograft tissue is much, much better as you, if you go back and watch our video today than autograft injections. Yeah. Some people in the chat are saying they've had it and helped and other people are saying it didn't. So mm -hmm. I guess it doesn't help everyone, but might be worth a try. Yeah. 
And the key is to identify, right, who are the right candidates, you know, mm-hmm. were they and did they receive the appropriate treatments? Because not all physicians or healthcare practitioners provide the same treatment, as I mentioned. Um, it's uh, done willy nilly and poorly in some places. And so whenever people tell me they've had it, I ask more details, right? Tell me exactly what they did. What did they use? How is it performed, et cetera? Thank you. And Krista says, Dr. Esser, my 22-year-old daughter has some sort of cyst on her pituitary, causing her to not have her menstrual cycles and falls asleep easily during the day. Her physician put her on birth control in order to protect her from osteoporosis. The long-term continual use of birth control has me worried. Is there a more lifestyle way she can deal with this? I've never heard of birth control for osteoporosis. Tell us a little bit about that, if that's a real thing now. Yeah, I'm certainly not familiar with the benefits long term of using this artificially, you know, so I don't know of any data that supports the use of birth control long term as a preventive strategy for osteoporosis. Um, When people have pituitary tumors, uh, you know, I think it's extraordinarily important that they see excellent neurosurgeons and excellent endocrinologists so that we fully understand the nature of the tumor. Uh, track it appropriately, right? Because I've had people who have had small tumors rapidly grow into larger ones that then led to, you know, emerging complications. Uh, and so I'm sorry that your daughter's dealing with that. But, and I think it's very important you have the right team uh, around her with regards to that. I don't think that there's a true uh, lifestyle intervention that is well proven in that area because uh, when you have a tumor, right, this is abnormal growth and abnormal metabolism uh, in a cellular tissue. And in this case, the pituitary, which is producing all these different hormones uh, that obviously then influence her on many different levels. So uh, again, I would have make sure she sees a, you know, the best you know, neurosurgeons possible in the country and, and get an opinion there. Great, thanks. This question is from Anonymous. And it says, a friend of mine who's been whole food plant-based SOS-free for the last several years just found out she has breast cancer. Do you know anyone who's been eating this way who is a breast cancer survivor? And how should she address people who question her way of eating and the fact that she has cancer? So we want to remember that nutrition is one aspect of cancer risk. And then there are lots of others. Let's not forget, for example, that consuming alcohol increases your risk by 15 to 30%. So if your friend was eating an SOS free program, but also drinking right on the weekends or multiple times per week, she still was increasing her risk. In addition, many people who especially came up in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, were taking birth control, right? Or taking hormones when they began to hit menopause. And so these birth control medications increase the risk of breast cancer, notably, and and then the hormones increase that risk as well. So the only person I know a family, a distant family member of mine, for example, who ate a plant-based, very healthy overall program um, and developed breast cancer, but as it turned out, took large quantities of estrogen and other hormones, um, you know, during her lifetime uh, for other issues. And as soon as, you know, she ended up having a bilateral mastectomy and never took any other medications. And she's 20 plus years later, healthy as ever, and still eating a plant-based program, never had a recurrence. And she herself, you know, states, I think that this all was a result. She's actually a, a physician and says, I think this is all due to the medications that I took with estrogen, et cetera, back in the, in the day. And I never should have done that. So I think it's important, right? To remember that uh, number one, we're all imperfect people in an imperfect world. So things can happen to us. And number two, though, that there are other risk factors beyond just the nutrition that we need to make sure that we're checking those boxes. And that's why I'm such a strong advocate for you to look through your cabinets, look through your pantry, track what you're actually doing. 
and extract as much as possible all those risk factors, right? Also things like the antiperspirants, all the aluminum that you're putting under your underarms, right in that area. So a lot of different risk factors there that we need to address. But as far as kind of a conversation about it, what I've learned over time now, having seen some family members and extended family members die from weird cancers or weird things, is uh, to say the following. Uh, this program, this way of living is not a promise that you're going to live to 125 or be immortal, but rather this program is a promise to you that the majority of diseases will not occur in your life. And when they do occur, you will have the best fighting chance to address them and respond you know, for your body to fight them off and to heal. And that's the reality, right? Because you may get the brain tumor, you may get the strange condition here or there. But the reality is the healthier you are, the more vital you are, the better your body can do in that setting. And so again, this is about, I, I was talking to a patient the other day doing some counts and I was wanting to remind them that this whole way of living is not about a checklist. Did I eat my three servings of broccoli and my five servings of this? And I get my exercise here and I do this, et cetera. But rather the whole reason to eat this way is so you can be the most vital version of yourself. So you can be the best version of you showing up every day, Right in your family, at work, in the volunteerism that you do, whatever it might be. Not to mention that you are saving animals from suffering and you're radically influencing in a positive way, the environment. But so that's your reasons to do this. It's not a, you know, a golden ticket to immortality. So it's very important that we have that all perspective right. And that why we're doing this is so we can be the best, most playful, most energetic, most vital versions of ourselves for as long as we're gifted with this life. Could you tell me which program I take for immortality? I'd like to sign up for that one, please. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We have three more questions. If you have time, I'll go quickly through them. Thank you. This is um, from Michelle. And you. I know you have the juice bungalow. If you'd like to tell people what that is, because she's asking, is it necessary beneficial to do a parasite cleanse? And if so, what are your recommendations? Only time I think it's worth doing a parasite cleanse is if you've been in a you know a questionable part of the world drinking questionable or eating questionable things, right? I think if you've been exposed to a bunch of parasites through your nutrition or through your hydration, um, you know, and or if you have symptoms that appear to be possibly related to something like that, like a chronic bowel dysfunction, chronic severe fatigue, abnormal weight loss, uh, all of these sorts of things. Uh, and if you have some of those, well, then, yeah, it might be worthwhile actually taking the anti-parasitic medication for a period of time, uh, followed by excellent nutrition and gut health. Uh, but a lot of people who want to sell you products say that everybody has parasites and you all need to take, you know, this herbal tea and this thing here, et cetera. And at the heart of it, the heart of the success of those programs on average is a healthier nutritional program. And just eating that healthy nutrition helps your body to get healthier. So again, make sure you don't truly have a parasite. And number two is, uh, you know, uh, start with the food first. And if you're finding you're not able to maximize your success, uh, then you can move forward from there. Thank you. Marcia says, is yoga a good weight-bearing exercise for osteoporosis? I do it daily and walk daily, but not sure if I need to add more. I'm 72 without a thyroid and was diagnosed with osteoporosis in my wrist. It improved to osteopenia the last scan. The only medicine I'm on is armored thyroid, which I've been on for 35 years. I don't think that yoga is adequate. I do think that you know, there are some studies showing yoga does build some amount of bone, but I don't think it's adequate as compared to the weight resistant type exercises. So uh, I would encourage you to consider doing more. Great. Thank you. And then I actually, we have two more. Let's see. This is from Trisha. I'm 72 female. want to put on muscle mass. I'm told it's impossible at my age. 
I am considering blood flow restriction training. I never heard of that. Is that safe? What are the pros and cons? She's 5'4", 110 pounds and does uh, different personal training type things. Yeah. So blood flow restriction is now all the rage. And it's the concept is that you exercise a given area of the body while you decrease blood flow to it briefly. And then you kind of take out tourniquet off and blood rushes there. And there are some studies that show some increase in strength gains. Uh, you know, I, I think that for the elite level athlete who's trying to maximize some small percentage of gains, that blood flow restriction makes a lot of sense. For some people who are recovering after surgeries, there appears to be some benefit. For the average Joes and Janes among us who are just trying to get fit, the heart of the success is the exercise and the consistency of it. And remember that it takes up to eight weeks to maximize that hypertrophy of the muscles. So be patient, stay consistent, stay committed, and stay disciplined. What a sworn, you know, I follow you on social media, but I'm not on it a lot. You were doing some kind of workout, weren't you recently? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm always trying to push myself. Right? I know. I, I love uh, when you're yeah. doing the cooking, but I, that's so cool. You guys really need to follow him on Instagram. The link is below. Okay, this is the last question from Heidi. And she says she's 69. Her resting heartbeat is sometimes as low as 56. She thinks it's because she eats this way and she's thin. She says getting her heart rate up to 50% or more, which was 75%, 75 beats per minute, according to the charts, without injury is tough for me. I can easily get it up to 66 or 72 for exercising long periods. Am I still getting any cardiovascular benefit? Even if I can't get my heart rate up so high without injury, do we need one day a week completely off from cardio if we vary our exercises each day? Well, so I mean, I think people have a low heart rate based upon their level of fitness, exercise, and health. That's a wonderful thing. If you have a sick cardiac syndrome and abnormally low heart rate and you know, you're fatigued all the time, that's different. So I think if your energy is great and you're able to push yourself hard, uh, that's wonderful. Now, and you should continue to push yourself hard. Uh, the goal is 150 minutes per week of cardiovascular exercise, all the way up to 300 minutes per week, still giving you benefit. Uh, you can go back and watch Chef AJ's and my talk on exercise as medicine to learn more. Uh, but I think that... Um, you know, it is valuable to kind of look at how hard you're really pushing yourself. Are you sweating? Are you out of breath? Uh, the classic talk test, can you talk but not sing? Uh, this, these all kind of influences kind of the, are you really pushing yourself as hard as you think you are? Uh, but again, if you're exercising to the point that you can talk but not sing, that's a moderate level of intensity and you are getting health benefits there regardless of what your heart rate is at that time. But if you do have any other issues like fatigue or chronic tiredness or feel lightheaded or chest pain or abnormal rhythms, you should have that evaluated with a good EKG and possibly a stress echo uh, with you, you know, exercising on a treadmill and then tracking your heart rate. Wow. Thank you so much, Dr. Esser. You're just a wealth of information. And I, I did go on uh, Esser Sports and there's some really great articles there. So if it's not in the show notes, I'm going to add that website. We always had your other one listed, but I did not know that you had this one. Well, thank you. I always love spending time with you. And I know yeah. I'm looking forward to you said you and I are getting together later uh, yeah, in October as well. Yes, Doctor, um, uh, Guys, if you're on my mailing list at chefaj.com, we have a wonderful eight-week program. And Dr. Esser is one of the experts. And we'll have two-hour sessions where you can ask him questions. And it's going to be amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Esser. Have a great day, all. Thanks, Jeff AJ. Bye. Great. And if you have a chance, bring Roscoe on sometime. I know you're doing it inside. A lot of times you do this outside. I'll have to make it happen. Okay. Bye. Thanks, Dr. Esser. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow at 10 a.m. Pacific time for Drs. Munich and 
Bandana Chala. They are the lifestyle docs, and they're going to be talking about a comprehensive approach to positive behavior change. Take care, everyone. Bye.